0: Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and following. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's always a wonderful privilege to be able to come to you and engage with you along uh, a process of reading the scriptures. And as I alluded to in my prayer, I'm convinced that there are certain passages that have been so distorted by Sunday schoolism. ism And that's a new doctrine that I'm coining. Uh, It's a doctrine that I did not invent, but a term that I'm coining. And those, those passages actually cause us to miss the total import of what is being said. I had the privilege two weeks ago of substitute teaching a Bible class at Dominion Academy, the greatest class in the world, Bible Survey 1 and Bible Survey 2. One of the interesting aspects about the Bible Survey classes in those schools is that they spend... So much time on Genesis 1 through 3. We spend over two quarters of the year, over half of the year on those passages. And uh, this idea that I have that we trivialize the portions of Scripture that are quite relevant is probably no better seen in the su- than in the Sunday school approach to Noah's Ark. If you've ever seen a kid's Bible, perhaps a, perhaps a kid's Bible will have on the cover of it, Noah with all the animals, and, and it's presented with this wonderful scene, and it's idyllic, and the, it's a utopia of all the animals peacefully coming up to Noah, and you totally miss the fact that the entire world is destroyed. <laughs> in, in fact, if you ever go to a church nursery, often there's a, a Noah's flood theme on the wall. Uh, this is This is indicating to me that we have completely uh, trivialized large portions of scripture, historical accounts that are theologically informing. That is to say, everything that God has done in the scriptures informs us something about him and something about us. And so I am convinced that the church's deep neglect of this, along with our deep rebellion against the wisdom of God, has led to a century plus of sexual immorality, a revolution of morality that has taken place in the larger cultural context of uh, the Western church, America and Europe. Most of this in America began when the church began to throw off centuries of wisdom in teaching about contraception. And it was the disjoining of marital unions to the beginning or bearing of children and at the time, Catholic theologians actually rallied to the cause that this will lead to a great travesty, societally speaking, and they were right. They have been proven right since the 1900s. Of course, we saw a great movement of this taking place at the church's abdication of bringing the word of God to bear in in the, the context of the family. That then led to, 40 years later, the the bringing out of what we call no-fault divorce laws. No-fault divorce laws basically disconnect the equity or the the justice, the ethical provisions for suing for divorce and establish the court as an arbiter of rendering asunder what God has joined together. After that, that begat the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution has, of course, begat abortion, abortion being directly linked to the contraception Actions. In fact, many forms of contraception are themselves abortive. And then this leads to finally what we see in our day, the the revival of paganism through the abominations of homosexual sin and the attempt to sanctify that thing by trying to call that marriage. Uh, If you were here as a member of this church when we were back at the Obergefell decision, uh, you may remember a, a sermon on this fact outlining the theological reasons why this is yet another leaf on the tree of the high-handed rebellion of man against God's order. But I'm convinced that this is a great issue that you need to be informed on theologically, and it is extremely related to the gospel. The gospel is not just the declaration that you are a sinner in need of salvation, that that salvation has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he made an atonement and now you can go to heaven instead of going to hell. That is not the whole gospel. The whole gospel includes the understanding that not only did you sin, but you sinned against a holy God, a creator God, who not only created you, but has the right to speak over you his law word, which declares to you how you may or how you may not live. And that at once you were a rebel against that law word and now being renewed in life, being recreated after not only the image of Adam, but now the image of Christ, you have been empowered by the spirit to live and walk anew in order that you would graciously receive that law word and seek to do it, not to be justified by the law, but to put it into practice. This is what was included in Jeremiah's prophecy, that we would do the law from our hearts. It wasn't the removal of the law, it was the translation of the law from the tablets of stone to the tablet of your flesh heart, which had to be, your old heart was dead in stone, it had to be cut out, and it had to be restored anew. A new heart is put into Christians, and as such, we ought to be at at work in not only defending ourselves against the lies of the enemy, but putting into ourselves a great love for God and a love for God's pattern that we might be able to winsomely defend the creator against those who would seek to destroy his rule. What I mean by that is, you have been surrounded by people all of your life who have been told lies as we're going to look at some of those lies, and those lies are not only blinding them, They heartily accept those lies because they wish to not come to the realization of the truth. That is to say, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness because they do not want to know God. They want to hide from God. They're attempting to run from God. And when we see a culture such as the American culture is totally disconnected to ethical teachings about human beings and the nature of marriage, of course we're going to have these sorts of weeds popping up in the garden. Nevertheless, this is not a disconnected to the gospel issue. This is not sort of an issue that you can, uh, you know, be uh, on the fence of and get into the kingdom and then work out later. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying that someone has to be convinced of the rightness of all this in order to be saved. But many, many people are seeking to use these sorts of issues to keep, an, keep Christ at an arm's distance, if you will. And so I don't think that these are just helpful for you personally. I think these are also helpful things to understand evangelistically. That is to say, you are, you are constantly engaged with, talking to, connecting to, relating to people who have been told lies, and you have the opportunity to bring them into the truth. Now, in talking about those lies, we're going to talk about the four aspects of what I see in these two passages, the first being the calling of Adam, his unique role, and his unique creation, something that we'll examine. And as we examine each one of these, I'll briefly comment on some of the lies and the doctrines behind those lies and contrast them to what the scriptures teach us. We're going to look at Adam's calling and creation. We're going to look at the creation of woman Being unique, being the pinnacle, Uh, men. Just so you know, you aren't the best thing in God's world. (laughs) Uh, Men and women are equal, but women are more equal. Um, (laughs) That, of course, leads to the idea of the sanctity of marriage. Again, this is a this is in all of these things as we examine them. Uh, please hear me, I am not some, first of all, I'm not old, not old enough to be such, but I'm not just a curmudgeon old guy who's yelling that the, the kids need to get off of God's lawn. What I'm saying is that there has been a deep neglect of these things and a deep unwillingness to preach of them biblically until the crisis comes. The crisis, unfortunately, is already at the door. We live in the crisis. The crisis is the oxygen we breathe in this culture. Nevertheless, it's not right to only talk about these things after something happens. Many of my friends have bemoaned the fact that they have not already preached politically related sermons up until this point. That's something that I have not done as much as I'd like to. But alas, you cannot fix a problem that was created over a century with one or two sermons. We need a great recovery in the church of the willingness to adopt the scriptures, what they teach us, and to do it in a hearty and wonderful manner. So many Christians, especially young people today, in college or in high school, even if they are what you might call a fundamentalist, and I'm using that in a good term, that is to say they heartily receive the doctrines of creation, they secretly want to kind of make fudging room or wiggle room so that they can seem respectable to their non-believing friends or family but i actually believe that your right reception of the scriptural teaching is like a fragrant offering to god that there is something distinct and unique and that actually is attractive to those who god is calling and drawing to himself rather than being something that repulses them that is to say that sinful man when he is being drawn by god God begins to give him some understanding of the great dysfunction and the mire of of iniquity that he and his worldview uh, promote and live in. And so I actually believe that being a non-compromising Christian, that is to say that these are something that we don't get to debate but rather receive, that that actually is greatly effective in conversion. Christ's death for his bride is finally the point of all of this. Again, as I mentioned, this is not a non-gospel issue. It's not an issue that is orthogonal to or disjointed from the scriptures. It actually is deeply relevant. What we say about the forming of Adam and Eve is what we're saying about Christ and the bride. Because not, not because we maintain that, I, that connection, but the scriptures maintain that connection. So... Uh, I mentioned that we're going to dismantle some lies, and so here we begin. Moses' writings, which are the Pentateuch, the five books of the Bible, penta meaning five, tuke, I believe meaning teaching or law, books, there you go, five books. uh, Moses is writing these words, and he writes them in a way that is not only historically accurate, but is theologically rich and theologically accurate. His writings, therefore, stand ready to condemn modern atheistic evolution, what you might call Darwinianism in a biology sense, but not only just in a biology sense, in an anthropology sense. That is to say, what Darwin says about life is intimately connected to what he means when he thinks about who man is. And therefore, his doctrine of man also is required to have a revolution in the doctrine of God. When Darwin posits that life begins spontaneously that the species derive through happenstance and circumstance, he directly contradicts God's clear revelation, but not only that, God's purpose in the creation. Not only is spontaneous generation terrible science, it's also terrible theology. And lest you think that I'm mincing the, the, the two, it is impossible to have a science without it also being a theology. Two plus two is a theological statement. You can figure out how later. Life which arises from chaos is ultimately purposeless. Now we're talking about some philosophical things, but you're a philosophical person. And so you have the ability to understand these things. You already believe something in this realm, and I believe that you ought to submit to the scriptural teaching here. So life which arises from chaos that is spontaneously forming from less complex forms of chemical processes to now what you might call biological processes, that idea means that the biological effect is purposeless by definition. It, arou- it, it arises spontaneously, it has no particular aim, no particular goal, and therefore is ultimately purposeless and destiny-less. There is no point, it is absurd to attempt, uh, uh, people think absurd means uh, doesn't make sense, but actually the, the word absurd means it is impossible to understand. That is, there is nothing to understand there. And so man, if he believes that he is a being which has arisen through spontaneous combination of chemicals and the circumstantial changes of biology so as to over millions of years form a highly complex person, if man believes that he has a purpose, he is thinking absurdly. It is just his attempt to rationalize his existence. He is ultimately folly. If man is just a byproduct of Adam's fizzing, he is an absurd speck on the face of time and ultimately has no coming forth nor destiny. This is what the the atheists who are consistent actually say about themselves. If you've ever heard of a man named Richard Dawkins, he occasionally has some self-understanding when he begins to reason like, the, I, I read a, an article about his discussion of the banana and how the banana doesn't signal that it's ripe, going from green to yellow, being ripe, and then brown, it just happens to be the case that that is something that happens. And the animal's understanding of that is merely coincidence. It just has the appearance of being mature or ripe. And one might have to say that Dawkins needs to take his whole process a little bit further because Dawkins lives in the world that he is speaking about. This is why my phrase, I I didn't coin this phrase, but I use it a lot. Whenever you're speaking about anything, you're speaking about everything. Because everything that you say is a truth claim. Dawkins' proposition that the banana just happens to have some sign of maturity or ripeness, that idea also affects Dawkins himself. He doesn't happen to be a person. He just is this random fuzzing of chemicals. He doesn't happen, he's not actually teaching. He just is going through the process of matter in motion. He ultimately is purposeless and destinyless. In fact, he posits this about the, the universe, that ultimately the universe is meaningless and that man is just a bleep blip on the radar of time and that he has nowhere that he's coming from, nowhere that he's going. If you ever want to hear a great song about this idea, listen to the Beatles. They have a song called Nowhere Man. It's a wonderful song because it is somewhat truthful. But in fact, against Dawkins, against Lennon, John Lennon, uh, man has purpose because he derives from a purpose-filled creator, originator, who is imposing his intended end on the thing that he creates. So after the initial creation in Genesis 1, which we didn't read but you're familiar with, each of God's acts in creation involves some manner of partitioning that is taking something and setting it aside from something else or producing that is to say that he calls the earth to bring forth beasts or he calls the waters to swarm. Now some have compromised in this issue and have taken the language in Genesis to say when it says the waters shall swarm that that is a pointer that that Darwin's actually right. They don't know how to read the Bible. Um, but the point is, in saying this, that the earth brings forth vegetation, that the earth brings forth the beast, is just to talk about God's perspective in the matter. It's not to talk about some random thing happening chanceless, uh, with you know without design. So, in partitioning in the in Genesis one, we see the heavens being partitioned from the earth. That's the very beginning of the scripture: light from darkness, firmament from waters, and the land from waters. Each creative act that God does is a partitioning or it is a production. At first we see the earth bringing forth plants, the waters swarming, and the earth bringing forth living creatures. There's this partitioning or production ma- uh, pattern to Genesis. And after all of these things, on the, on the sixth day, uh, after creating the creatures with his word, he then gives a command to those creatures. At first, he says to the the lights to be separated, and then he just calls it good. But when he gets to forming creatures who can reproduce, he gives them a command, and that command is to be fruitful and to multiply. And he doesn't say that only to Adam and Eve or the man and the woman. He says that also to the beasts. What is this telling us? This is deeply relevant, theologically speaking. It means that God who brought forth the creature with his word also has the right and willingness and desire to speak a word to that creature, to call it into living within his pattern. That is to say, the creator God is also the lawgiver God. The creator God is the Law giver God. On the sixth and final day of creation, God uniquely intervenes in the creation of man. I think this is very important considering how we think of ourselves, how we think of other men, how we think about God. Though the earth brings forth living creatures, it says that God formed the dust into a man and he breathed into that man the breath of life. This is a unique intervention in the pattern of partitioning and production. God does not just cause man to come up from the earth randomly, but gets involved with his hands and with his spirit. And so God invests The image of God in man, he inspirates, breathes into man, and Adam becomes a living being. If that's not a picture of the gospel, I don't know what is. The point is that the beasts were called individually, created individually in pairs, but Adam here is formed uniquely. After the beasts are created, God says, be fruitful, but after Adam is created, he puts him in a garden and gives him a command to tend and keep. Not only does God create man, he establishes a home, a habitat if you will, and he that home is not just a place for Adam to work, though it is a place for him to work, it's also a place for him to dwell. Immediately after putting Adam in the garden, God then says to him what he might be able to eat. God has provided for the man completely. Verse 15, "The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat Of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. See this pattern of law giving God after Creator God? This is what God desires to do in this story, in this account. He wants to show that he has the right to speak about the man and to the man. So God creates a home for the man and calls him to tend and keep the garden, and he brings the creatures before Adam for two purposes. One, God wishes to desire to see what Adam would call them. The the God who speaks forth the word, bringing forth creatures, has lent his authority to the man, and the man is then able to say a word concerning the nature of the animal or the creature in order to see what it might be called. And that calling name designation is not just a biological test. Adam is not just saying, oh, well, this one has four legs, that must be a mammal. Oh, this one has wings, that must be a bird. The identification that Adam does is a taking authority over. God says his law word over the creatures because he has the right to. Adam declares their names, identities, purposes, because he has the right to. You see, atheistic humanism in Darwinian evolutionary theory says that man is not uniquely identifiable, distinguished from all the beasts. He is just a byproduct of chance and time. And therefore, we ultimately see this in modern day, Uh, When we think about, you know, man sacrificing himself for the good of the planet, the planet is to be used for the glory of man. Nevertheless, that's not my main point. So just, you can think about that at a later date on your own. The point being that Adam has a unique calling in naming the animals, but not only that, God wishes to teach Adam something, even as Adam is naming the creatures, adam through the process of naming each creature one by one comes to realize that he is unique and different from the animals verse 18 the lord said it is not good that man should be alone i will make a helper for him god has already posited the thing god already knows the thing and then he desires that adam would come to that same revelation himself as soon as god purposes in his heart to do this As Moses faithfully records, he then says that Adam should name the animals. The point is this, that Adam is distinct, he is not a beast. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. As each creature passes, Adam begins to realize how dissimilar he is to the rest of the creatures. He is not just a creature, he is not a creature in the way that they are creatures, Adam is not a beast, he has been formed by the hand of God. So this pattern, this calling on Adam is unique. This task to tend and keep the garden, God says that there needs to be a helper in this task. The idea of multiplying is impossible for Adam. He cannot multiply, there's no helper suitable. He can't tend and keep the garden, there's no helper. And so enter uh, stage left from uh, the woman. Adam has gone through this process, and on this particular day, he has named the the creatures, and now the woman is about to come into the story. But in order to see this, in order to get all that's being said here, we have to look at, again, another pattern of the scriptures in Genesis 1. On each day, it begins with darkness and moves towards light. There was evening, and there was morning. The process of God's creation on six six, six successive days, six days in a row, is the process of glorifying and transforming. Before there is darkness, and now there is light. Light is glorified darkness. It's not uh, not the case that it is just distinctly darkness being evil and light being good. At the beginning, there's no connotation between darkness and and evil. Uh, Over time, there will be in the scriptures, but not at the beginning. And so there's darkness, and then there's light. There is a heavens above and an earth beneath, and then God separates them with an expanse. There's first water, and then water from the dry ground. He separates things. He partitions things. He glorifies that thing in order to make it more useful and beautiful. This same pattern happens with man. A deep sleep comes upon the man and out from the man, God forms woman. The man is changed and modified just as the waters were separated to bring forth dry land, so also the man is cut in order that the woman would come forth from him. Adam created in the image of God is able to identify these creatures and name them and God is also a naming God. God calls those things good, Adam names the creatures, but God calls them good. The first poem in scripture, therefore, is a song, not about God's beauty, although that would be fitting, but it's interesting to me that the first song in scripture is about the beauty of God's creative acts, namely woman. It says, and the rib that the Lord had taken from God from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Even the English to this day bears some understanding of the fact that the word woman is a addition to the word man. It is a more glorious creature. Uh, And uh, oftentimes you hear the the kind of dad-jokish phrase that Adam sees this you know, this woman and his response is, whoa, man. (laughs) Now, that again is trivial, but it has some kernel of truth, and that's why it's funny. The woman, therefore, is the pinnacle of God's creative acts. This is why Christianity throughout the centuries has been understood as being so deeply uh, at antipathy with humanism and uh, what you might call unsanctified patriarchy. That is to say that modern man seeks to Uh, pagan man seeks to overrule woman, but uh, glorified man, Christian man does not. And likewise, not only is the joke about the woe man uh, deeply relevant, but also the understanding of the placement of the rib that modern commentators have often understood this to be an indication of the unique role together that men and women have. If Eve was taken from Adam's foot, she might be trampled on. If Eve was taken from Adam's head, she would be greater than he, but she was taken from his rib, that she would be near his heart and side by side. And that understanding, although poetic, I think is deeply relevant and true. So, each successive partition brings about something more glorious light from darkness, land from waters, dust to man. And here, God not only takes the dust, he doesn't uniquely form Eve from the earth, but uniquely forms. Eve from Adam. Against the humanists we see the unique creation of woman as establishing human dignity in maleness and femaleness. This is the next coming social revolution and is already here. The the whole trans movement is a group of theorizers, philosophers, God deniers who attempt to overrule God's design. And you ought to be prepared not only to defeat their theory, but also show the winsomeness of God's design and order. Men cannot become women, women cannot become man. And so God's act in forming woman from man is the pattern for marriage and understanding its sanctity and understanding its rightness. His pattern establishes the cause, justification, and prototype. That is to say, the marriage of Adam and Eve that God uniquely establishes, causes, and brings about is deeply relevant for all men, not just Adam. Whether this conclusion at the end of this chapter is the words of Adam or Moses, they are certainly the words of God and are confirmed by Christ. The summary statement in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God's order and pattern, therefore, bestows a dignity upon marriage. Marriage is not something that arrives from man or derives from man. And and this is deeply relevant in in the idea of seeking out a wife, young men. Uh, God brings the woman to man. Man does not have the idea. Man does not ask God for the woman. I think that's interesting. Verse 25, this rightness, this marital union is understood in verse 25 to be a glorious thing. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's interesting to me that in the fall, the immediate implication of the fall is that there has been something that has destroyed what God said about marriage. It says that Adam, when Adam is asked by God, where are you? He says, we knew that we were naked, and so we hid ourselves. But understanding that, Uh, against this verse is deeply relevant. This is the original condition of male-female relation in matrimony. That is to say, in marriage, in God's joining of a man to a woman, which is accomplished by God and cannot be accomplished by man, uh, that union bestows a dignity on the relationship. So not only can men not marry other men, but men can't marry women because God is the one who marries man to a woman. That is the idea that's put forth by these chapters. Their nakedness without shame is fitting to their right relation. And as we mentioned, and you'll see in Genesis three, if you take the time to read it, that relation is destroyed through the introduction of sin. And so this production partition pattern is finally combined. God forms man from the dust, but takes woman from man. What does this say about marriage? Poetically speaking, when men and women come together, it's like heaven meeting earth, right? The partitioning is is done in uniquely forming them, and in marriage, the union of the two is a glorious thing, a wonderful thing. Again, the scriptures show how far modern society desires to run from God's design, and of course, the examples abound, and you know them, and I don't need to reiterate them to you. So, Understanding this and how it relates to the gospel, these things that we come to know from the scriptures are deeply relevant to what we understand about the gospel. The gospel, as I said earlier, is not just the message that you can go to heaven instead of hell. The message of the gospel is that not only has Christ remade you, but he's remaking the world. And part of that remaking comes to a renewal of our minds by the spirit by which we receive God's law word as instructive instructive and seek to obey it from the heart. That law word, being instructive, also constantly shows us, points to, and glorifies Jesus Christ. That is to say that God's formative pattern in marriage is not just a testimony to the people in that marriage, it's a greater testimony to the world around them, the community around them, about the glory of his son, Paul teaches us that Adam was a pointer forward to Christ. This is his main idea in defending the existence of the resurrection. He, he links it to the fact that Adam, being the first man, fell, and Christ, being the last man, the last Adam, succeeded and restored that which was lost. Though Adam's the earthly man, Christ is the heavenly man. Though Adam was the head of all those who die in Christ, all those who are headed up by him are made alive again. This is, again, this idea that Adam is a pointer forward to Christ and that not only is it a pointer forward in just a literary sense, there is some spiritual reality at work as well. That is to say that all those who have joined in Christ, all those who have been made alive with Christ, have been, re, uh, they've been moved from just being a part of those who are the sons of Adam to now being a son of Christ, if you will or a son of God. That is to say that Christ as their head is a representative to them and they ought to begin to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling. Though Adam fails in the garden, Christ overcomes the temptation, praying to the Father. At the Garden of Gethsemane, it is not ironic or coincidental that Christ faces his final temptation in the garden because that's where Adam failed. Adam failed in the garden, he failed to protect his bride, he failed to sacrifice himself and interpose between the woman and the serpent, something that obviously would have been dangerous to him. But Christ overcomes the failure of the first man by interposing the assaults that were coming against his people, and he steps in, interposes, and takes the hit himself. What's so beautiful and glorious is this is all, of course, foreshadowed in the Proto-Evangel, uh, proto-evangel in G- Genesis 3.15, where it says that the, the serpent will strike the seed of the woman on the heel, but he will crush her head. And so Christ's uh, great undoing of the failure of Adam is not just a restoration of what was lost. It's a total victory and triumph over that enemy that Adam uh, that existed even before Adam's failure. That is to say, Christ's restoration is not all that's in view. It's also a victory over Satan and his minions. Adam's sleep, therefore, is obviously mirrored in Christ's death. Adam goes under a deep sleep and goes under a sleep that is deep enough not to notice that he's being cut open. Uh, We have many nurses. You can ask them later how deep that sleep might be. That's a very deep sleep. Uh, especially if you know any, anyone who's weary of not having much sleep. Adam's sleep, therefore, is like a death. It is like a death in a poetic sense, and that death is mirrored in Christ. Adam goes to sleep, and he's cut, and a rib is taken from him, and that rib becomes the forming element of his wife. Christ, likewise, on the cross, after he has died, fully in sleep, if you will, although Christ did not just sleep, he also died, his side is pierced. And out from his side comes two things, water and blood. This pattern of water and blood is now for us, those who are in Christ, a source of unending life, that is the fountain of life being coming from Christ, but also unending, complete, and total forgiveness. In, a, uh, in Ezekiel's vision of the wasteland in the wilderness. What comes forth to transform the wilderness is a river that's flowing from the temple. And Christ himself being the temple has that river flowing forth from his side. That river goes forth into the earth and transforms a wasteland into a garden. And he restores us to that garden. And so not only does water pour out, but also blood, meaning that Christ not only washes, but he sanctifies He not only cleanses, but he designates for holy service. This is something that's deeply important as you read the scriptures. Blood does not just forgive sins. Although it does that, it also sets apart the people and the priests of God that they might come before God to worship him in holiness. That is what it means to understand, appreciate, and receive and plead the blood of Christ. Not only that God would forgive me, but that in some miracle of God's grace, he could transform me in order to be useful for his kingdom. That I could walk before him with a head held up high. Not just one that bows before him, wagging back and forth as I deal through life under sin. But one, an understanding of the blood of Christ that not only atones, but designates as holy and ready to be used In service. This is why Paul then connects the two. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is what it means, married men and single men alike, to love your wives. You are a living parable, a living prophetic symbol, an image that points to Jesus. And your service for your wife, although it is not supposed to be one that dehumanizes you, actually is one that fully humanizes you. You become conformed to the image of Christ, the real man, the redeeming man. And so this is deeply informative, not only in the gospel, but how we live out our Christian witness. And this pattern of Christ giving up is twofold. He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, and that he might present the church to her in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Let's pray, Father, we thank you for your word. we ask, We ask you that you would give to us a deep hunger for your scriptures that you would restore within our hearts and minds a knowledge of your word that is sufficient that those who are out in darkness when they ra- rail against you when they or or when they come with questions that they would hear a right response. we pray that you would cause us to be Christians who are against the world for the world, that we would be those with a distinctive understanding of truth that is not our own uh, making, that's not just our desire for a normative, social, cultural setting, but one that's founded upon your scriptures. And we pray God that you would begin to open our eyes to see how intimately connected these things are to your gospel. That what we say about marriage is what we're saying about your son. That what we say about men and women is what we're saying about your created pattern and order. God, we pray that you would deliver us from the spiritual depression and the, the ugliness that comes through hearing that we are just glorified goo that came out of a pond one day. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a dignity that comes from your scriptures, that we would be washed anew in your son, and that by your spirit you would renew our minds that you would equip us, Lord, for not only bringing the gospel, but also bringing the full counsel of God in the gospel. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.